it's just funny how there's like just some odd like okay we're done talking now it's not well 7.14 close enough I, uh, I'm Kevin Griffin and this is the Dharma and Recovery class I don't know if I'd call it a group I don't know what it is it's Dharma and Recovery and I'm up here and you're out there so we've established that um and, you know, this is the first uh, gathering of the year, which is, it's sweet to see uh, everybody show up in this nasty weather, usually in California. If you live in Southern California, you know, if it rains, you just stay home. So you can get to your meeting, you know, over the Internet, you'll be fine. Um, I'm curious how many people here are actually on my mailing list, just a, f- a fair number, uh, you know, because I, I always wonder, like, how do people remember to come? But I guess maybe you have, like, devices that tell you. That's the only way I know where I'm supposed to be, my device tells me. Because um, it's, since it's once a month, it's easy to forget. I also do a, have a similar event, though usually quite a bit smaller, at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery on the fourth Tuesday, if you want to try to remember something. Uh, fourth Tuesday of each month at Berkeley Buddhist Monastery uh, well it's in Berkeley and that's on my website you can get directions from there so uh, if you're over in the East Bay uh, come and join us there so this this group has been going on for many years um, now and uh, we used to meet uh, across the way when they had the old buildings and uh, moved over here in 2016 and um I don't know why people come. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that in any kind of a silly way. I just mean everybody has their reason for coming and what they think they're going to get or what they what they want from this. I I hope that uh, hope you get something that's useful. But we, you know, we're we're not a. This isn't like an AA meeting, uh, but it's definitely about recovery, um, and it's not a meditation. Group, but it's definitely about meditation and Buddhism. So it's kind of this hybrid that's uh, we've developed. I guess I could say I've developed, but it's not not exactly some ingenious thing, you know. And what we do here is we meditate for a while, uh, about a half an hour, which for some people might sound like a long time, but it's okay. We'll we'll take care of you. Um, don't panic. And uh, and then I usually take questions about meditation so we can really uh, address those kind of questions. And then we have a break and then, then I give some kind of a talk. And, I, and it's often, I often try to relate it in some way to the step of the month. Uh, and we'll see how that works out uh, this, this month. Uh, since I've been doing this for so many years, uh, I try to um, do something... Fresh. I don't like to repeat myself too much. Plus, I can't really remember what I said in the past anyway, so I'm, I might be repeating myself, and I just wouldn't know. But uh, hopefully you won't know either. But, you know, the, there's also something, you know, beautiful about the repetition of the steps that, that we're uh, in this process each, and that... It, and it's even to say we're you know in step one because it's January is an artificial construct, but but um, 
I guess, you know, there's a term in Buddhism called refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. That's taking refuge in the kind of wisdom mind, in the teachings, and in the community. But we also, we take refuge in the steps. And, and if you've worked the steps or are interested in working the steps, there's a way in which they can become kind of uh, protectors uh, for you, uh, things that you can trust and always kind of look to in a moment of uh, difficulty and kind of what, what step do I need to draw from at this point. And so um, I will also note, and this is uh, one of my typically personal notes, that uh, tomorrow, January 12th, would be my parents' anniversary. They were married in 1935 on January 12th. Not sure how many years that would be, but they're both long dead, so we don't have to worry about it exactly. But uh, I can't help but uh, the last time I met you guys, I was talking about my brother's wedding anniversary from December 27th. So I, I don't know, I guess I'm maybe I'm getting old and Yes, the past becomes more important because there's not much more future to look to. So, you know. um, this, the last thing I'll say is uh, that this month in January, I usually teach a college course uh, at St. Mary's College out in Moraga, and uh, four days a week two and a half hours a day. We meditate in class every day. and I'm going to bring the students out here on Martin Luther King Day. But uh, it means that I've been in this very uh, intense kind of academic and meditative environment uh, for the last couple of weeks. Or I guess this was the first week. Seems like more than a week. Anyway, uh, it's kind of a wonderful way to start the year uh, with a bunch of college students teaching about Buddhism and meditation. Um, so I'll kind of pick up where I left off this afternoon with them. Um, so let's, let's begin to sit. I think it's easy to overlook posture. In meditation, sometimes we think that meditation is just about the mind. But it really starts with the body. So take some time to really settle into your posture. Try to sit in a way that you can be upright and alert without being rigid or stiff. Look for a balance, an alignment of the spine, alignment with the hips and the shoulders. You can close your eyes or you can also meditate with your eyes open if you're not comfortable closing your eyes. It's not unusual for people to get a little Anxious, especially when they're first practicing. So you can just lower your gaze if you're more comfortable with that. This is a pretty safe place. Safe, as far as I know. 
And so just feeling the body, it's nice to kind of ease your way into a period of meditation. So kind of feeling the whole body sitting here. Just kind of a sense of being in this space. As you hear my voice, you can kind of hear the space of the room with the echo. And this is a a sacred space, a place that's devoted to spiritual practice. So it really supports our practice to come into this beautiful meditation hall. And just to sense that quietness here no traffic no music no screens of course even that the absence of those things can actually be challenging at first as well if we're just beginning to learn meditation if you're not used to quiet or world or culture don't leave much space for quiet so maybe taking a deep breath or two and just softening the body having a sense of releasing might even feel the body being drawn towards the earth the feeling of gravity and just noticing too then how you're feeling right now depending on how your day has gone or your week. Maybe you're tired or stressed or maybe you're bright and alert. Sometimes coming into silence allows kind of background emotions, things that have been hanging out to come forward. And you realize, oh, hmm, that feeling of grief or sadness or worry or something pleasant. You realize, oh, I'm really feeling good. It's been a good day, good week. So just to check in with yourself, to acknowledge where you are, One thing we know is that no matter what your mood or state is, it will change, often soon, but certainly sooner or later. So if it's unpleasant, we don't have to kind of worry about that. Part of our practice is to trust that we're able to hold 
feelings, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. But we don't have to run from our feelings. And of course, this is part of recovery as well. Now letting your attention come to the breath. Feeling your breath at the nostrils. Coming into the body and feeling the chest and lungs expand. Seeing how the breath moves the body. And then letting the attention rest on one point of sensation, either at the nostrils, with the touch sensation of breath, or at the belly, with the movement rising and falling. So as we begin to pay attention to the breath, it can be helpful to make a soft mental note as you breathe, saying in, out, if you're following the breath at the nostrils, or silently noting rising, falling, if you're following the breath at the belly. The words just help you to stay with the experience. It's natural for the mind to drift off as we try to pay attention to something as subtle as the breath. This is an integral part of meditation, noticing the wandering mind and bringing it back. It's really this repetition of coming back to the breath over and over that builds our practice. We're rarely going to be able to hold on to the breath continuously. So a patient and gentle attitude towards ourselves is needed. Patiently coming back.
If there are repetitive thoughts in the mind, if you seem to get stuck on a particular line of thinking, see if you can step back from that. Notice where you're stuck. Question your own thoughts. Are they actually giving you accurate information? We start to observe the thoughts, the words and images that pass through the mind. It can start to seem like an absurd play going on. These repetitive judgments and worries or regrets. Spinning round and round over and over. Another important element of practice is to come into the body whenever you can. Thoughts tend to trigger emotions and feelings that appear in the body, especially in the heart and the belly and the gut. We need to be open to these feelings or else they fester within us. Again, we need to trust ourselves to hold these feelings, not to turn away from them, not to try to fix them, but to see them clearly. Addiction is often an effort to get away from our feelings. So in recovery, we have to learn how to feel. How to feel without harming ourselves or others.
you have a microphone there, Andy. Thanks. So, as I said, there's a little time for questions about practice, about meditation. Uh, although I'm willing to address any topics you want, you know, the warrior's possibility of a three-peat, the odds on the NFL playoffs, you know, cover a lot of topics. You can talk about Paul Manafort, you know, if you want, but it might best be depressing. So there's a hand over here. Thank you, Andy. I'm, you're, I hope you have your... Uh, Fitbit on, so you're getting all those steps in. Hi, everybody. My name's John. John. I'm a recovering blank, <laughs> and my life had become blank. Um, wow. <laughs> you know how they, how, is, it, is Nirvana achievable for people like us? I'm sorry. Or no? I shouldn't laugh. No. I just, you know, let's start with the I'm easy, easy uh, questions. <laughs> like, do I know? Do the letters IDK mean anything to you? No, I, I don't know that one. That's a texting for I don't know. Okay. Yeah, right. I learned it from my daughter. So everything I know about texting, I learned from my daughter. But uh, I mean, uh, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's. Why? What? Just like you know, take care of this moment. And yeah. Okay. That'll right. take care of itself. Yeah. Um, do do. Do you think that uh, I'm powerless over my my brain, my thinking, because the thoughts just come in? Was was the Buddha, you know, did, was he? What I meant by you know achieving Nirvana, did he have a you know a blank brain at, and it can control his thoughts coming in and going out? Well, I haven't talked to him in a while, so. Uh, what I've read, uh, you know, certainly meditation isn't about having a blank brain. And, and indeed, if we, you know, you look at how much the Buddha taught, he must have been thinking in order to have all those ideas. So it's not that he didn't, didn't think. But there, there is a sutta in which he talks about um, becoming a master of your own thoughts. So that's, that, that uh, sounds good. Uh, that's maybe along the lines of what you're getting at. That, yeah, I, I think that the idea is that if you are... <coughs> fully awake or fully mindful or fully present in every moment and aware of everything that's going on in your mind that you then can uh, maybe get to a point where you can sort of choose what you allow to take hold in your mind. You know, it's not so much that the thought wouldn't sort of, the bubble might not start to come up, but that you just wouldn't engage it. So the, there are many stories in the suttas after the Buddha is enlightened where he is approached by this character called Mara. Mara, sometimes called Mara the tempter. And Mara will come along and kind of whisper something negative in the Buddha's ear. And the Buddha's response is 
almost invariably, I see you, Mara, and then Mara slinks away. So it's kind of like I see that thought trying to take hold, but I'm not buying it. So that's how I think of how the Buddha thought, how his mind worked, uh, that, that stuff still showed up, even negative stuff, but that it just didn't take hold in his mind. And, and we can see how we can have that experience ourselves in this practice, with this practice as we, as we develop it. Not, not that we're going to be, you know, in every thought, but that, you know, you can, you can sort of notice sometimes, oh, like, that's coming up, like, I'm not going to go there. And it's not unlike, I mean, you know, in recovery, we have to do the same thing. You know, that, that thought, like, oh, like, it's Friday, this is a good night to go to a bar. And then, like, you just don't pursue that thought. You know, it's like, no, you know, no, I don't do that anymore. But the thought might still appear, you know, or something might trigger the thought, you know. Walking down the street, you smell some reefer, and it's like, wow, that smells good. Oh, yeah, right. No, I don't do that, you know. I mean, as I was driving over tonight, I was thinking a little bit about like how weird it would have been if marijuana had been legal when I was a marijuana addict. Like, it just would have been so different. I can't even really get a grip on it, like what it would have been like. And oddly enough, you know, there's something about the whole underworld of being a drug addict, uh, of copying and everything that's part of the, I don't know, thrill, but it's part of the culture of, of being embedded in that lifestyle, so... I'm so, that was a digression, but uh, I don't want to trigger anybody's. You know. So thank you. Yeah. Andy, would you mind going asking Sarah to turn the heat down a little bit? Yeah. You used the the term "master of your own thoughts" yes. previously. And I understand in some literature, master of your thoughts and master of your emotions are in unison. That's not true for me at all. <laughs> and I was hoping you could share a little bit about the, where master of thoughts ends and master of emotions begins and maybe how the two start to harmonize together. Well, well I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not, there's nowhere I've seen in the Buddhist text that talks about being a master of emotions, but the, the Buddha rarely talks about emotions per se anyway. So, I mean, he talks about hatred and craving and stuff like that, but he doesn't really, and anger, but he doesn't really talk about, like, depression or, you know, he talks about, well, anyway. So, I'm not sure how to, how to answer that, uh, except more out of my own experience, which is to see that the the two are really intertwined. It's not really that one ends and the other begins. It's much more that they're they they inter are, as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say. You know, they're they're together. They blend together. Thoughts trigger feelings, and figure, feelings trigger thoughts, and what we call emotions, I'm not sure um, really uh, 
if that doesn't include thoughts, actually, you know. Like when I'm in a bad mood or I'm depressed, the, that it includes a feeling as well as th- thoughts and a kind of uh, view or attitude towards my experience. It's this negative attitude, right? Everything is filtered through that attitude. So, so the thoughts and the feelings really aren't... I can't really exactly disentangle them. Which is why I think um, I go to the body. And this is really where you know, my teachers guided me and where I, I think a lot of Buddhist practitioners aim their attention because thoughts are kind of unreliable in a way and emotions are also kind of not that trustworthy but feelings in the body seem more real in a way they're kind of like okay this is this is here now this feeling and they are also entangled in this relationship of thoughts and feelings and but the but the thing that's useful about them is that they don't have words uh, there's no uh, um, words coming through them. There's no thought attached to a sensation. So when we can sort of, the way to step out of that entanglement is to move into just feeling the physical manifestation of the thoughts and emotions in the body. And kind of, whereas a lot of the time I think we spend our time from the neck up, it's now here it's like to shift your attention from the neck down and be in this part of the body holding and breathing with that uh, and that's where I process and kind of work with and disentangle uh, uh, from that process I, I mastery is not something I would you know claim or or even really talk about because when we even using a term like that sort of suggests this type of uh, control that is very appealing, and it's appealing because we're at, well, not just because we're addicts, but as humans and as addict humans, it's like that's what we want is control. And the the uh, you know reaching for that, the striving for that, or even setting that up as a possibility of a goal is just another way to. Um, sort of delude ourselves and, and, and sort of fall into this, um, you know, I'm not good enough, uh, I have to be better, I should be... And, and, it's, and it's, you know, the idea of control is an expression, comes out of fear, you know, that I need to be in control. And, and this practice is much more about letting go of the fear and realizing that it's okay to not control. To, to just feel, to just have thoughts. And, and it's, it's really our relationship to them that we're trying to uh, alter, change. You know, our relationship, it, when we can let go of the fear of the feelings, then we're moving into more of a, a sense of intimacy or connection with allowing. You know, this is how, 
it is. This is life. This is this is my existence, and it's okay to be this way. So I'd say there's also this element of faith. I mean, the antidote to fear is to some extent faith, not religious faith, but trust in our own capacity and trust in this process in in the power of mindfulness. Um, so the, there's a lot of fear tied up with addiction. This fear of feeling being at its root. And, and then that effort to control comes in to, so that we're, we don't have to feel. So, and, and of course that just winds up, you know, creating this other disaster, you know. Uh, it's kind of like the, you know, uh, we'll just intervene, we'll just go into this country and, you know, change their, uh, government, you know, and then it'll be okay, you know. It's like, you know, just leave it alone, you know, just give it space. You know? um, and that's kind of the, it's related to the topic I'm going to get into more later. So, thank you. Well, all right, one more, great. Hello. Hi. Um, would you have some words of advice? Um, I'm being an addict, uh, knowing what that feels like, and moving into a different part of myself right now. Um, I want to make sure that I'm not hiding behind practice and um, searching the same way that I hid behind everything else that I did. Yeah. Well, I. I don't like to at least admit that I'm giving advice. Um, try to avoid that particular um, uh, term, at least. So your concern is that that you'll turn like the meditation and Buddhist practice into another kind of uh, avoidance, exactly. in a sense, yeah. yeah. And that's certainly um, possible. Um, the, the, there's a term, I don't know if you've heard, the spiritual bypass, which is, a, uh, I find it, you know, a really interesting concept. Um, the idea that we would kind of try to solve emotional problems through a spiritual practice. And it's not to say that a spiritual practice can't help with our emotional problems, but, but um, ultimately we have to kind of find a, a, a um, solution that fits the problem, I guess, uh, in that regard. But so, um, I'm not sure how to. Uh, how to address this in terms of, you know, advice or or thinking about it. Um, it seems like something that you just have to feel out as you go along. I mean, the the you know the principle of recovery is this self-examination, but not self-criticism. <laughs> you know, and those two can you know we can blur those. Uh, I think sometimes people in recovery are working so hard that they're 
sort of spoiling the whole thing in a way. I mean, not, not the whole thing, but spoiling spoiling the fun of it. Uh, so, what I would the thing that I worry about with people getting involved in Buddhism who are in recovery is that they forget about the recovery thing and decide that Buddhism is the cure. In, in my opinion, my opinion, it is not the cure for addiction. You know, I mean, not that there's a cure, but that. So, so what I'm saying is that I don't think there's any problem with getting deeply involved in Buddhist practice, but that you should also stay involved in your recovery as a separate thing. In a, as a you know a separate whether it's a, you know AA or refuge recovery or something that's recovery oriented, that that's still really central to your life. Um, I obviously you know I hold recovery. You know here I am I'm like sort of a Buddhist teacher, uh, you know. But I, I guess I am a Buddhist teacher. I just uh, but but I really hold recovery. As more central to to who I am in a way, um, so that that's the only thing I would be concerned about. I, you know, yeah, you can kind of hide out in your meditation, but not for that long. You know, eventually it'll kind of solve itself. I think, or or people will start to give you crap. You know, and that's one good sign. So let's take a little break and then we'll come back and see what happens next. Will you ring a Oh, she did? Okay, well, you can fool me. Didn't affect people. They're not conditioned. We haven't got the Pavlovian response I was expecting. Just like New Year's every year, you get fresh fish. That's, oh, is that what it is? Might be. It's a lot of, lot of newcomers. Yeah, they'll, they'll all be gone next month. We can hope. We all get better quick. Maybe. Well, I get paid the same amount if I talk or not, so I'll just sit here. I wanted to, um, before I start up again, just uh, announce that uh, I will be co-teaching a week-long retreat, a silent meditation retreat, at the end of April and the beginning of May. There are flyers out there. Uh, it's in, at Vajrapani Institute down in uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, teaching with Jill Satterfield, who's a wonderful, very wise um, teacher also in recovery. It's 
uh, we won't, it will be kind of thematically about recovery, but basically uh, a silent retreat. So if you're interested, uh, there are flyers out on the table now, because uh, I forgot to bring them, so Sarah put some out for me. Um, that should be a really great uh, retreat. I'm looking forward to it. So, um, so just uh, to reiterate step one, or maybe just iterate it. I'm not sure I iterated it yet. Um, we admitted we were powerless over blank, as the gentleman would say, and that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, and, and I'm not going to address that step head on. Uh, I want to talk about a quality that I think helps us to deal with that, that admission. And that's the quality of uh, equanimity. Equanimity is a, is a balanced of mind. It kind of has the root of equal. It's kind of... There's, there's a balance in the mind, um, and it it uh, it actually appears in several different teachings. At least three that I can think of, um, and uh, so it's really a treasured quality in Buddhism. It's kind of when you see a Buddhist monk, when you see a peaceful Buddhist monk, that's kind of what you're seeing is equanimity. And, and so the, uh, the way I want to kind of talk about this is, is uh, in relation to a certain aspect of the mindfulness practice that the Buddha talks about. So a lot of what we do in Buddhist meditation is focusing on um, the body and then kind of noticing thoughts, the kind of the more obvious aspects of it. The, in the teachings, the, the most famous teachings on mindfulness, the four foundations, the second foundation is something that we don't have an English word for. Uh, it's, it's Vedna in the Pali language, the language of the early texts. The, and Vedna is kind of the uh, immediate, sort of instantaneous uh, impression that we get from ever any sense experience. It's the first thing that hits us before we've had a chance to process it or think about it. Um, so there are three aspects of Vedana when we experience anything through our six senses, and Buddhism considers the mind a sense. Everything we experience has a quality either of being pleasant, unpleasant, or, as it says in the text, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which we usually just call neutral. So pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Everything that we experience. So most of the time we don't notice this. But, um, you know, there are certain things that are very pleasant. You know, the taste of good food, um, a beautiful sunset, um, sense experiences 
um, or you know, some, or some success, some ex- experience, a mental experience, feeling good about ourselves, and then of course unpleasant, you know, physical pain, uh, you know, problems, conflicts with people. But the, the Vedna is talking again about sort of what just happens when we just first experience something before we've processed it, and. The reason the Buddha says we should pay attention to that is because these three forms of Vedana lead to and trigger the three, uh, what are called three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. So pleasant Vedana triggers craving, or we call it greed, but craving is probably a more accurate term. Unpleasant Vedana triggers aversion, hatred, and neutral uh, Vedana triggers uh, delusion or ignorance, lack of awareness. So, equanimity is a place in which we don't get triggered. We experience the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but we're not triggered by them. And so you can see that, first of all, equanimity really requires a a lot of clarity, a lot of mindfulness, because Vedana happens so fast, and we go from pleasant to wanting, usually without even being aware of it. So you're walking down the street, you smell baking bread, and you just walk into the bakery. Even if you have an eating disorder, and you're and it's and you're uh, you know gluten sensitive, and it's not a gluten sensitive bakery, you just go in. You know, it's like craving. You want it, right? Um, so this is why the Buddha is encouraging us to kind of have this awareness that we see. Oh, that's pleasant. Oh, I want that. So most of the time, in our ordinary mind states, if we're not if we're not in a very refined mental state, we can only sort of know the Vedana almost in retrospect. It's like, oh, I see. You know, I'm I, I'm in the bakery, and I go, oh, if I know about Vedana, I can go, oh, that was just pleasant. I can leave. You know, I don't have to stay here. Because um, most of the time, we're just not going to be that subtly aware. I've had experiences on retreats where I was able to pick this up, and pick it up, and it's really, really interesting to walk through life, even for a few moments, where you're catching the impression. And it's kind of, it's kind of a little like walking on air. Because you just don't feel like anything is pushing you around, um, and and I'll say that one of the things that I see people in recovery, and I've certainly had this experience, is that after we get clean, there can be this uh, real desire to not be controlled by our desires. If that's not uh, a uh, call it 
contradictory, self-contradictory, that we get to a place where we realize, you know, I'm kind of being pulled around by my craving, you know, like food, sex, you know, money. It's like, I'm just... And so one of the natural things we do in recovery is kind of start going no, saying no, learning to say, to say no. And we, we learn kind of the power of no and how, how freeing that is. I don't have to be drawn to all these things. So in recovery, we call this serenity. And serenity is a good... Um, it's, it's not exactly a uh, synonym for equanimity, but it's a manifestation of equanimity. It's an expression of equanimity, <coughs> serenity. So, what does it take to get to this place of equanimity, of balance, of not being caught in these things? Well, as with it, I guess everything in Buddhism, it takes awareness. But it takes a certain kind of awareness. So, I'd say, you know, and this is, you know, this is why there's this eightfold path because it's got all these elements to it. Before you're going to even try to attain equanimity, you're going to need to want to have equanimity. That is, you're going to need to see that there's some value in it. Because, you know, if you are looking for kicks, thrills, you're not really looking for equanimity. And equanimity might look kind of boring. And, you know, you hear this from people early in recovery sometimes, like, yeah, everything's kind of chilled out in my life now, you know, but I, I don't know, it seems kind of boring. It's like, no, that's called serenity. You know, you're just, you're just not used to it, you know, being peaceful. Like, I'm just sitting there staring out the window. Yeah, that's kind of nice, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess it is, now that you mention it. So we have to have this, so this is an aspect of right view, one of the parts of the Eightfold Path, like to see, oh, this is valuable, and then to have the intention to work towards it. And once we have that intention then, what we need is the, the willingness to let go. The willingness first to, to feel the pleasant and to not uh, follow it. Or to even feel desire and not follow it, which is more likely. As I say, it's difficult always to just catch the pleasant before the craving comes, but, but to be able to have the craving or to have the aversion. Uh, and, it, you know, the, uh, it's, it's difficult to talk about the neutral. I'll, I'll try to get there, uh, but I'm going to probably mostly talk about the, the pleasant and the unpleasant and the craving and the aversion. Those are kind of the, the stars of the show. So this kind of comes back to some of the things we were talking about uh, before the break, about feeling. And, and so it, it, there's this, uh, this key element of practice of being able to feel, of learning to feel. And, and again, it takes a, a willingness uh, 
in a sense that it's worth feeling. I mean, I think that one of the reasons we become addicts is because we, in a sense, we could say we we don't see any value in suffering. <laughs> Maybe that's not a bad attitude, but when we choose to intentionally cut ourselves off from some essential part of life, which is pain, then we are choosing to cut ourselves off from an essential part of life. And it's kind of saying, well, I know what life should be. It should just be the good stuff. You shouldn't have to have the bad stuff. And indeed, I mean, you could say that's kind of I don't know if that's human culture. It's certainly Western culture that it's all supposed to be good. You know, and this is like the, the danger of, of uh, social media for younger people especially, the, the sort of FOMO thing. Uh, you know, like everybody else's life looks perfect online, right? Because they don't show you like the puking into the you know, toilet and the... You know, waking up in a bad mood, and you know the dog biting you. You know, it just—that's just not something we. Oh, let me share that. You know, no. I mean, you know, the breakup. It's like you're crying. Oh, let me get a picture of myself. <laughs> so you know, there's this sort of idea that we can get this idea that that. It's supposed to be a certain way, and if it isn't that way, there's something wrong with me. I don't know if any of you ever had that thought, that there was something wrong with you. But, you know, this is kind of the disease, right? I mean, we not... And then, we think there's something wrong with us, and then we make sure there is something wrong with us, right? (laughs) self-fulfilling prophecy. So there needs to be this willingness to, to be with all of life. Say, okay, I, I can be with all of this. Now, one of the delusions of the mind is that the way things are in this moment is the way it's just going to be unless I do something about it. So, if I'm not feeling good, if there is pain, I need to fix it. Because otherwise, it's here forever. So this is why the Buddha, at least one of the reasons, presumably, why the Buddha kept reminding people, everything is impermanent. Everything is constantly changing. So, we need to remember that if we're going to have the confidence and the faith to turn towards the unpleasant. Or to even just feel the craving without acting on the craving. We need to remember like, oh, it's going to pass. You know, the people who did, um, the people who developed uh, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, they worked a lot with smokers. uh, Which, you know, it's a difficult addiction to deal with, but it feels a little minor league to me. (laughs) But, you know, they were researchers. They needed to put out their research and they needed to look good so they, they didn't want to fail. 
Um, no, uh, smoking is a terrible addiction. But uh, they they taught the these people in this mindfulness training uh, about impermanence, and and people would find they would point out to them that their craving for a cigarette would only last for a minute or so, and then it would pass. And if they could just get through that wave, then they could hang in, you know. And it might come back in half an hour or 20 minutes or whatever. But they would always, just realizing like, uh, oh, because craving, uh, what's what's the thing that craving tells you? I need to be satisfied or I will never go away. And you're going to feel like this forever. And in fact, you're probably going to explode or die if you don't drink right now. Right? So this, uh, this capacity to realize, okay, I can be with this feeling because I know it's not going to last forever. Uh, if, we, if we don't have that insight, which is a part of right view, uh, I think it's really difficult to work with, with difficult feelings, with the unpleasant. Or again, with the craving to let go, to not act on the craving. So, uh, what uh, comes up now as I talk about this is the monastic rules. The in the Buddhist, particularly the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, they have a whole lot of rules about what they can do and what they can't do. So they are forced to face their craving and not act on it over and over. You know, they can only eat at certain times. They don't have sex. They can't buy stuff. You know, on and on. So this is, you know, and and ironically, then you see a Buddhist monk or nun, and they look peaceful, right? It's because they've been practicing not acting on craving. So it turns out that when you don't act on craving, what happens is you don't have as much craving. Because when we act on something, that reinforces that thing, that very thing. As the, there's a line from the Suttas, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the habit of mind. And so not only what you think and ponder upon, whatever you act upon, that will become a habit of the body. So we learn to sit with our feelings, to be with our feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral without acting on them. And it actually then reduces the power of them. Uh, This is not... We can't uh, bargain, make a bargain like that. But that's the end result. It might not happen right away. So what I'm saying is like it's risky if you go into... If you say, well... I guess I don't have to act on this because it'll go away if I don't act on it. Well, you know, don't, as I say, that's kind of the bargaining. Uh, but 
are uh, this this is kind of how we this is how we work towards and develop equanimity that we learn to be with these feelings to hold them and so that holding is operating on several levels that I've been talking about but I want to clarify that the holding is happening on a felt level on the sense level where I'm feeling the feeling of craving or feeling the feeling of aversion and then it's also happening on a cognitive level where I'm aware of the impermanence of it and I'm aware I'm also, as an addict, I'm aware of the risk in it if I act on it. So there's a cognitive and a uh, you know uh, visceral kind of quality to this, and and they all include awareness. So what we can see is that our practice itself, when we, one of the reasons that the word practice is so. Uh, points to, or maybe I should say, what this word practice points to is that we're actually practicing not acting on the Vedana by sitting there and doing nothing. Meditation is taught with many different forms. People teach mantras and visualizations, different forms of breath awareness, body awareness, uh, noting practice, scanning the body. Don't tell anybody, but my opinion is that none of that stuff really matters that much. What really matters is to sit still and do nothing. I remember seeing a, somebody trying to critique meditation some years ago saying, well, you know, they've done a study and people get just as much from sitting there doing nothing for an hour as they do from meditating for an hour. And I was like, yeah, that's the same thing. You know? <laughs> we just think we're doing something. We give you like these practices to do that you'll think, oh, this is really great. I can, I can really pay attention to my breath. I'm such a good meditator. Like, who cares if you can pay attention to your breath? That's not useful. Like, nobody's going to hire you to do that. The thing is that when you sit still and do nothing, it means that all this stuff is coming through and you're not reacting. And every time you don't react, it diffuses it just a little bit the power of that. And you're learning what it means to be sitting here and having an angry thought and wanting to get up and strangle somebody and going, oh, that's what it feels like to be really angry and want to strangle somebody. That's unpleasant, okay. But I can be with that. And if I breathe a little bit, uh, yeah, it's kind of going away. All right. It's cool. Or... Wow, I'd love, that would be great. Oh, man, oh, I really, I would love to do that. Man, maybe a double, yeah. <laughs> huh, no. And you're still not, you know, you're still just here with the feeling, right? I mean, as addicts, did you ever think, hmm, I have a longing 
for an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> How does that feel? Hmm, it feels kind of like uh, I don't, you know, just I can kind of feel it here. And my, there's a thought. Um, I think I'll go approach this gentleman behind the bar and ask him what sort of beverages. Yes. Now, what effects do you think I'll get from this beverage, sir? You know. Well, I think you'll get a mild state of intoxication from that. But if you have a double, you have a stronger. Oh, that sounds interesting. I think I'll try that. Mm. Oh, yeah. That uh, that is intoxicating. Huh. Interesting. I can remember there was a time uh, when I was uh, in my mid twenties. I took a break from drinking for a while, uh, and it's. It was like, for a weird reason, it's not even worth going into, but I took about six months where I didn't drink. I continued to smoke marijuana on a daily basis, so I don't want you to be disappointed in me, uh, you know, to think that I was actually clean. Um, But I remember distinctly the first beer that I had after that. And uh, I was in this bar in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, my hometown, and there was a band playing. Slim Pickens, they were called. They were a really good, like, boogie band. Anyway, at the bar, ordered probably a rolling rock. It seems like it was a tall rolling rock. I, I drank it, and I felt that I had been poisoned. And it was like, wow, that's, is that what that feels like, to have a beer? Like, that's not how I remember it. Maybe I better have another one. <laughs> Which is, of course, what I did. But it was like, you know, it was like a rare moment of actual mindfulness of what the alcohol felt like in my body, you know. Because we don't really feel it, right? We, I mean, the same thing with cigarettes, if you want to speak. You know, right? I, I, I quit cigarettes in a very weird way. I decided... When my, actually very young I, I started smoking in my early teens and and by the time I was 20 I had chronic bronchitis and my doctor told me I was going to get emphysema in five years so I thought maybe I should stop which was an unusual decision for me at the time to do something healthy but um, I, I realized that like when I was working during the day I could get through that without smoking but at night after dinner, drinking, I needed a cigarette. So for months, I just would smoke in, at night. And, uh, and eventually, it got to the point where the first cigarette made me sick. And it was a great way to quit because it, it was like aversion therapy, right? I didn't, it wasn't like I quit cold turkey and I was craving it. I was like, I don't like this anymore. But again, it was like this experience of of awareness of the thing I'd been doing. That I mean, most people when they start smoking, at first they get sick, right? (laughs) And then they keep doing it because it's cool or whatever stupid reason we do it. We get past that. So, um, I don't know how I got there, but it was something about mindfulness. So, this quality of equanimity. Um, the other word in recovery that is really harmonious with equanimity is acceptance. 
So, because this is, it's not the term that Buddhists use, but when we're talking about being with Vedna and not acting on it, we're really talking about acceptance. This is just the way it is right now, and that's okay. I can accept that. And so what's the result of that? Well, serenity, as the serenity prayer tells us, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I think it actually works the other way around. I think that the acceptance is what gives me the serenity, but it's not as poetic. Uh, but and so acceptance is another way to kind of approach this question of of equanimity, of how that how that arises. And again, it's this you know core principle of recovery that we have to learn to be with things as they are uh, before we're going to have serenity, before we're going to have peace, before we're going to have equanimity. And the, and so, you know, this is, again, where Buddhism and recovery come together to, to me so beautifully that, you know, we kind of have this image and idea of serenity and acceptance. And Buddhism kind of gives us this way in to see how that really can happen through a process, through this process of awareness and seeing, taking apart our experience and seeing the elements of experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and seeing how they lead, where they lead and then starting to pay attention to those on this subtle base way. So we're not just theorizing about it or talking to our sponsor about it. You know, we're meditating each morning and we're sitting with these feelings and we're starting to see, oh, that's this, oh, that's, oh, I see. And then this starts to become really part of who we are and how we engage the world. And we have these really powerful tools to, to guide us and to hold us through this process. So those are my thoughts uh, for tonight. I hope they're helpful. And um, it leaves some time uh, for discussion or for questions or reflections if anybody has anything to say. Lovely. Hi, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, I just had a question. So given the notion of equanimity uh, in action, where do you see the intersection between that and a lot of the social justice movements that have sprung up yeah. over the last couple of decades? How does a Buddhist react? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and, and a really important one because, you know, activism, activism and, uh, you know, the wish to heal the wounds of the world can trigger a lot of anger and frustration, often comes out of that frustration and anger and you know the you know when you look back at the the anti-war movement in the 60s you know a lot of the ways that it was expressed were unskillful you know violent angry i mean the 1968 democratic convention is probably the the low point uh, if not well some of the bombings probably were lower but that was the obvious uh, you know media low point uh, where there's a sort of pitched battle between protesters and police. And it was in the 70s that some of the people who were involved in the anti-war movement who got into Buddhism uh, 
felt that they st- they didn't want to become passive Buddhists. You know, like there's sort of this image of the passive Buddha, like you know, I just meditate and whatever the world just you know passes me by. I don't get involved. Um, and and they didn't feel that that was an authentic expression of Buddhism, and it certainly wasn't an authentic expression of their own values. So that was when the, they founded the the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, uh, which is the kind of the first Buddhist social activist uh, organization. Uh, people like Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, Joanna Macy uh, and others uh, developed that, and it's it's going today. But the the that became known as engaged Buddhism. But for a long time, there was kind of this sense of a split between engaged Buddhists and just like Buddhist Buddhists or whatever. And, but increasingly, uh, particularly in the last few years, uh, there's been a much more... Uh, robust engagement uh, and so that l- the leading teachers like Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and James Barras uh, uh, many of them talk, bring in uh, social justice issues uh, into their Dharma teaching um, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi who was primarily known as one of the great translators of the ancient texts. I mean, he was really the, the scholar monk has started an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, which works to feed people and to, and to promote, promote education, particularly among women in uh, you know, low-income areas. And so it, it's becoming much more of a central element of Western Buddhism, uh, uh, thankfully. And and the thing, it's, it's really important, I will say, to us, because I feel I'm, I'm part of that movement. Uh, it's really important to us that these, this activism be expressed in a positive way, in a way that's founded in compassion and peace, nonviolence, um, and that's looking for uh, answers uh, not just ranting about the problems. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly. Yes. How do you take the activism and square that against equanimity or inaction? So, right, because activism comes from the, the desire to correct. Right. So, so right. That's okay. Good. Thank you. I will focus on that more now that I've given my lecture on the history of Western engaged Buddhism. Um, <laughs> the principle, first of all, of, of engaged Buddhism is that it's not it's ineffective if it's not coming from a place of equanimity but the idea of equanimity and this applies to the practice of mindfulness in general 
it does not imply passivity. And it's really, really important to see that. Meditation is not the whole of the practice. Right? And in fact, meditation itself is not a passive. I don't see it as a passive activity. Even when I'm not moving my body, my mind is engaged, and my and my mind is making choices. And I am I'm not just sitting there going, "Oh well, this is what's happening." There's all this stuff in my mind. I'm making an effort to let go of certain things and to cultivate certain things. And so then, the same applies then to. Um, bringing that equanimity into engagement that I'm going to say because equanimity the idea of balance we can say it's never really there you know it's it's much more like we're on a teeter-totter you know and we're never really I'm balanced now you know that's that's an illusion we're always things are always a little out of balance and when we are doing this practice and we're trying to live our lives based on some values, we see that the world is out of balance, then our natural response is to say, oh, I need to engage this. I need to address this. It's not wise or compassionate to say, oh, there's suffering, but so I'm, but I'm just going to meditate through it. That's not that's not what the Buddha taught. It's certainly not how I understand what he taught. There, there's a responsibility, and this is where I think we did fall down for some time as Buddhists. We kind of try, as the question about escaping. I think for a time Western Buddhism was kind of people used it as an escape, and indeed at times I think the mindfulness, you know, thing, the sort of this new thing of mindfulness is also sometimes presented as that. Oh, it's going to reduce your stress. Well, that's okay. But maybe you should look at why there's all this stress in your life and do something about that rather than just calming yourself down. You know, maybe you're angry. Maybe there's a good reason you're upset. You know, <laughs> maybe you need to address that. So, so we really have to um, look at things through right view, like where, you know, what is a skillful way to respond to the way the world is? And, and being passive is not, is rarely, you know, a solution. Uh, being peaceful is different from being passive, right? Uh, I remember going to uh, a, a protest, I believe it was uh, in 2003, about the Iraq War. Uh, down it was down on Market Street, down near the ferry building, and I knew that the Buddhist Peace Fellowship was going to have a group there meditating. And I got there, and there was a stage, and there were people shouting on the stage, uh, dare I say, ranting, you know. And then there was this group of like fifty or more people just sitting on the grass meditating. And to me, that group, what they were saying was louder. Than that ranting on the stage, it was more powerful and more impactful because it said so much. It was like, oh, this is an expression of peace here. You know, you want you want to stop a war. You know this, and of course, not just not just going to meditate and that's it. But 
but to but to start come from that place was a very powerful expression uh, in that place. So that, I don't know if that helps. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's something I will say. It's something that I uh, struggle with to an extent, particularly in my teaching, because it's easy to slip from sort of social engagement into political stance. And, and then, you know, I kind of lose my credibility. Uh, I mean, you know, I, if I step outside and just go back to being, a, you know, a, a, a citizen, that's different, but in here. Uh, and, and I have been known at times to slip in that way. And I've been working on that, so just for you to know. Thanks for your talk. Um, <clears throat> I was interested about what you said about feelings and kind of learning to sit <clears throat> with whatever you're feeling, whatever is actually happening in the moment. So I'm curious, coming from a recovery background, do you, do you find that there's any contradiction there with 12-step recovery in the sense that with coming from AA or the 12 steps, there's often this idea of taking action. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're feeling uncomfortable with something, it's a, it's call someone who's new, or mm-hmm. call your sponsor, uh, pray, et cetera, et cetera. So is there, I'm just curious from your yeah. point of view, do you feel like there is some sort of a contradiction between just that and just actually being with what you're experiencing? Because I'm sober, <clears throat> but my one, that's one of the little critiques I've always had is that... Um, in a sense, it seems like that's not getting to the root mm-hmm. of the of what you're actually your core yeah. thing is that you're dealing with. So I was just curious about your view on that. I, well, I'm kind of an all of the above person. You know, I want to use all the tools that are available, but I th- I think I'm somewhat in agreement with you that, and and perhaps that's why I'm up here and why I do this. You know, it is one of the reasons, I won't say perhaps, one of the reasons that I do this is that ever since my pretty early, maybe immediately, when I got into recovery, I felt that there wasn't enough uh, meditation. You know, there wasn't enough inner work or, as you say, learning to just be with and develop real serenity. There was this prayer people said at the end, and then people would talk about it. But I knew, having been a Buddhist practitioner, that there were levels of serenity that these people in these meetings, you know, had not attained. You know, and uh, you know, and with a certain amount of arrogance that I had in my early recovery, I was like, "Well, these people really don't know what they're doing," you know. And of course, I, re- I discovered that. There are people who get tremendous serenity just through working the steps. I needed to really work the meditation part of step 11 to get the kind, that kind of serenity. And I think many people, most people would benefit from that. So yeah, uh, um, I, I don't like to uh, you know, critique 12-step programs because they get attacked enough by you know, the haters. Uh, but um, yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to do is to help help to expand 
what recovery is for people. Uh, that, so that it, it includes a more active uh, meditation practice. Which, but I, but I still think yeah, it's really important to be called your sponsor and to, and to do the uh, the action stuff too. And that's what I was saying before about you know I don't want to try to make Buddhism into my program. You know, I, I, I just have this idea. You know, I, I think people tend to sort of want to fall into camps or identify with one thing. Oh, this is the way it is. You know, somebody, another teacher I know who's in recovery is really on this kind of thing now about like a certain approach to understanding addiction. And he's just kind of like pushing it. I'm like, that's really helpful. And so is a lot of other stuff. You know, I, I try to be an and person. You know, when I worked with the addiction researchers, I kind of was like, this is great, but let's not try to discredit the 12 steps, which is what some of the addiction researchers would do. Like, you're not really powerless. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe you don't really understand the problem. You know, you sort of have this scientific view of it. You know, I mean, they did this experiment, I'll tell you, that, you know, that I, to this day... At the University of Washington, they had a bar in the basement of the Addiction Addictive Behaviors Research Center. They had a bar down there. And they brought people down who identified as alcoholics. Now, I don't know where they found these people. And then they served them drinks, and they told them that there was alcohol in them, but there wasn't. And everybody got drunk. Okay. And then they had people come in and they told them there wasn't alcohol in their drinks, but there was. And they didn't get... Uh, that, well, no, what they did... They said they were trying to discredit the idea of the phenomenon of craving, that you have a drink and you get triggered and you want more. They were like, no, you know, these people, they had a drink, they didn't know it was alcohol. It was, it's only if they know it's alcohol that they get... I was like, okay, that doesn't even make sense, even if it, you know, even if it was true. And... You just like I don't believe you. <laughs> Basically, you know, I'm sure the NIH gave you a lot of money to do that research, and you've got your book. But I mean, what are you talking about? Like, it's just so stupid. Like, and anyway, even if that's true, it's not really true. I mean, which I'm not even going to try to explain that statement. But <laughs> what I mean is, like, if you're an alcoholic, you got a problem with alcohol, man. And like, you know, whatever, whether there's a phenomenon of craving or whatever, when you start drinking, you drink too much. So, like, let's just, you know. But, you know, they had some wisdom. They knew some things that people in 12-step programs don't know. Then I was like, well, I'd like the people in the program to know this stuff too. But sometimes people in the program are like, oh, no, we don't need that because that's bliss. And all those people in the treatment centers do this. And then you go to the treatment center and they're like, oh, well, those people in the AA, they do this. And, you know, it's like, like, nope. Does anybody have the answer? Do you have the actual answer? Uh, no. Well, okay. Let's just listen to each other and use everything that we can that seems helpful and not try to disparage each other. And Like, oh, yeah, there's a high relapse rate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's called addiction for a reason, you know. It's, it's... That was fun. <laughs> My wife's out of town, so I don't have anybody to rant to. So.
Hi. Hello. Uh, so do you think one of the biggest hurdles for step one is that the word powerless feels uncomfortable and that people conflate being powerless over alcohol or drugs or certain behavior with being powerless over everything? Yeah. <laughs> I, there's a, a little one of the sections in step one in one breath at a time yeah. is called powerless not helpless mm. and so I try to like parse out kind of the, the difference how, as I understand it I, I you know it's interesting uh, you know because like a, a lot of times it seems like people approach AA trying to find a reason to not go. You know, like, oh, I don't believe in God, so I can't do that. Oh, powerless? I'm not powerless. What are you talking about? I can't. You know, rather than the opposite of like, let me see if this is useful. These people aren't drinking, and they seem relatively happy, some of them. So, and I have a problem with drinking, and I'm not very happy, so maybe I'll just check it out, you know, and not get hung, too hung up on all the details. But, you know, the idea of, I think the word powerless in some ways was a poor choice of words by the founders, by Bill Wilson, I guess. But on the other hand, I don't want to rewrite the step. I don't know how I would say, do it. I guess I would say, I can't control my drinking. You know, I, I admitted I can't control my drinking. That's, that, to me, is what powerlessness particularly talks about. Now, it also, though, refers to the phenomenon of craving, right? That once I have a drink, I can't really control what happens next. There's that famous scene in the big book where he has, like, the glass of milk, and then he's like, oh, I'll just pour this. It, can't, it won't really affect me, right? If as long as there's milk in it, like, <laughs> makes sense to me. Um, but I, I think what I think is a more useful approach, rather than trying to go, oh, the steps are wrong, is like, how could this be a? How could I get something out of this step? Like, what concept could I relate to, through my own experience? Uh, but I agree that, that the thing that turns people off is they hear, first of all, they just don't like the idea of I don't have any power because that's like scary. And, and indeed, they conflate that with the idea that well, you're telling me I don't have any power. It's like it says I'm powerless over alcohol or in NA, it's powerless over addiction. You know, it's, uh, but I, I think the idea of powerlessness is a really interesting one to explore. Yeah. You know? In meditation, for sure. Are you going to say something else? Yeah, can I ask a second part? Yeah, well, I've got two minutes, but... Uh, uh, um, on the flip side, do you think the concept of powerlessness is actually liberating? Where there's no struggle, there's no fight, there's no question of whether I can do this or not. Right. And also powerlessness, you know, with impermanence, oldness, sick, like uh, sickness and death. Yeah, right. And that once I give up feeling like I have power over that and I can stop it, that's when I actually have a chance of equanimity. Exactly, yeah. And, in fact, right, and that is the connection with equanimity, the clear dis connection with equanimity that step one has. And it was probably what I was thinking of this afternoon when I thought I'll talk about equanimity, so I'm glad you said that. That, <laughs> that you know, accept, accepting your powerlessness is, comes to, to peace. It's that kind of surrender. 
which when there's surrender, that's the end of a war. That's peace. So let's just uh, close with a moment of uh, perhaps gratitude, reflection. So just taking a breath and getting into the body. I'd actually like to leave tonight on the reflection of how much love there is in the world. So easy for us to focus on the, the opposite, on the struggles and conflicts. But in this world, I believe there is more love than hate. We love each other, our dear ones. We love life. We love nature. We love art and so many joys in this world. To appreciate each other and the love that we each hold. To take comfort in that. To know that even with all the conflict and struggles of the world, there's this vast vast range of love permeates life permeates the world may we all remember the love inside us and the love all around us Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.